0: Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. It feels so right and I know it's wrong to laugh at those children but I'm glad that you laugh too because there's something about watching that because that's life. Sometimes things just don't go the way you expect them to and it doesn't wait until your adulthood to start teaching you that lesson. It happens pretty much the moment you show up in different disappointing ways. And if you're new to Encounter Church, you've picked a great series. It's called Raising Losers, but it's more than just a parenting series. It's a person series. Because we all know what it's like to lose. We, always, we all know what it's like to experience one of those moments. But the sad thing about that video is that uh, many of us as adults in this room would pay money to go back to lose those kind of things. Because when you step into adulthood, it, you, the risk, the cost are so much more. There's so much more impact and consequence to a toy flying into a fireplace when it's a relationship, when it's parenting, when it's your job. And so this is a person series, not a parenting series, and it's about fostering resiliency. In a world where everyone gets trophies, how do you learn to lose? Because losing is important. And how we lose, I believe, is the key to winning in general. Uh, For some of us um, who are kind of news junkies, I would be one of those individuals. You probably were following along with Hurricane Michael a couple weeks ago. It was the strongest uh, storm that hit the panhandle in Florida history, and it came uh, this incredible intense, like rapid intensification over the course of less than 72 hours. It becomes almost borderline, just a few miles per hour off of a Category 4, and it's like this devastating wind, and it sweeps through Mexico Beach, which is probably the most compelling images that were being flashed across my television. And yet one of those images that flashed across was this one right here, and it was a picture of what was called the sand palace. This is a a rental home. Um, It's right now currently about the only rental home in that whole region, because when the hurricane force winds came through Mexico Beach, all the other houses were devastated and washed away. But the sand palace, this rental property, owned by two men from Chattanooga, stood. All the other homes had been built to code, which was um, on the Florida Panhandle, based on Hurricane Andrew. All the houses had to be built to withstand 120 mile per hour winds. And yet, when Hurricane Michael came through, there was more than 120 mile per hour winds. But when they built this house, it's fascinating watching the interview of the owners. When they built this house, they built this house to withstand 250 mile per hour winds which is why it's still standing. They built this house, and, and not just how do we survive every day, but how do we survive that one day, that devastating day that sweeps everything else away. And this picture of this house is, uh, I think, a living picture of what resiliency looks like. And this house, I think, even its architecture points to, as we're in this conversation this month around Raising losers and and fostering resiliency. It's a picture of what it looks like to do it in our lives, too. You see, the secret to this house standing is not what you see above the surface. 40 feet of that house is underneath the ground, concrete and still rebar wrapped completely over it. It has 40 foot footings. 40 feet footings, it's like a weird way of saying something like that. I mean, you wrap your mind, there is more to that house underneath the ground than there is above the ground, and it was able to withstand the pressures, and I think in some ways, this, that picture, this sand palace is the key to what it looks like for us to begin to practically foster resiliency in our lives, for us to begin to foster resiliency in our loved one's lives, whether you're a parent, whether you're a team member, whether you're a son or a daughter, whether you're you know, a leader at your workplace and space or whether you're coaching a sports team and everything in between, that there is a a way that you and I can foster it inside of us and foster it in those around us. And it goes to what's underneath the surface. It goes to what's at the foundation. And to start the conversation, I want us to go to a a place that is about 3,000 plus years away from here. It's uh, about 16,000 miles, 18,000 miles, depending on how you fly. And it's this moment in Israel's history. And in this, this defining moment of Israel's history, we see this key to fostering resiliency. We see this moment that if we're willing to slow down this moment and kind of almost go play by play, what will emerge is that 40 feet of footings hidden beneath the surface. Uh, Jason referenced the Encounter Church app. It's something we've created for you. It's free. You can download it. Follow along in the message today. Um, it'll also be on the screens around me. I'm going to be in a book that maybe if you're new to church or maybe you've been in church your entire life, you may haven't spent a lot of time in this book. Uh, if uh, This is the book of Numbers, and just going to give you a brief overview. The Bible, the Christian Bible, is comprised of two large volumes. There is the Old Testament volume, and there is the New Testament volume. The Old Testament volume, the first five books stand out. They're significant. And those first five books, called the books of Moses, the Torah, the law, there are different names for it. But that was kind of the foundation of the Jewish faith. And the book of Numbers is that fourth book in the series. It's arranged chronologically, the first five books are. And what you find in the course of the book of Numbers is the time period In between, where Israel gets rescued from Egypt and part of the, if you've ever seen the movie Ten Commandments, right, that's what's playing out there is Israel comes out of Egypt, they were enslaved there, and on the way to their promised land, because the promised land and the promised one are the two central themes of the Old Testament. If you were to summarize the Old Testament, it it basically boils down to God making two promises. I'm going to give you promised land and then I'm going to send a promised one. And so this promised land is uh, the focal point in this portion of the scriptures, this movement towards that promised land that's currently inhabited by different tribes and peoples. There is about a 17-day journey on foot from Egypt to beginning of the promised land, what we call modern-day Israel. And yet in Numbers 13, we see the moment in Israel's history where a 17-day journey turns into a 40-year one. In Numbers 13, verse 17, it starts off this way. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go through the Negev and on into the hill country. So Moses is the central leader of of this Egyptian uh, revolution that has occurred where Israel has come out of the nation. He is leading them into what is called Canaan, which is the promised land. It's the name before it becomes Israel. And he's giving these individuals, these 12 spies, Uh, he's giving them instructions in the verses that follow. He's like, look, I want you to go into the nation, this this region of Canaan, and I want you to explore. I want you to discover because we know God has given us to us. He's promised us this place. Now we need to have a plan for how we're going to take it. And so it says they... He says, I want you to kind of go up through the negative and into the whole country. He says, see what the land is like, whether the people live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees or is it not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. So Moses is kind of unpacking, like, hey, I want you to give me all the details. I want you to pay attention to everything. I want you to notice because this is where we're going to live. I remember when um, we were moving um, as a family and I had, uh, went and visited the house we were going to move into and I come back to my wife and she was like well and she starts to ask me all these questions and I'm like um, well there were four walls and there was a roof and I was pretty sure that's mostly what I saw and she's like well what about this and what about this and what about this and I'm like You should have given me those questions beforehand. I I wasn't looking. This is what Moses is doing. He's like, look, you're going to get caught up in this thing. You need to know what you need to know. And so here are the questions. I want you to see everything. And so we find out, and there's this um, kind of parenthetical thing that's helpful for us um, if we were Jewish and we were living in this time period. It says it was the season for the first ripe grapes. Okay? Um, That seems like a random statement in that passage, but what happens is, when you see the entirety of the books, these first five, um, in April of that year, Israel leaves Egypt. The first fruits of grapes growing in Israel uh, starts to emerge in July, late July. So what we know is that there's about two to three full months that has happened between leaving Israel and on the edge of the promised land. It's about a 17-day journey, but because Israel, when they came out of Egypt, were almost a million people strong, you can imagine, I mean, if you have a large family or if you've ever tried, tried to leave your house with a large family, you know, imagine you had a million children and you were trying to go to Target. Right? It would take a long time. And you don't even have a minivan at that point. They're on foot. And so this is a like 17-day journey, turns into two to three months. And so he's giving them these commands, and then he outlines for them in a series of locations and places that is not important for you to know, but geographically, if you had a map out, what you would notice from verse 21 and 22 into 23 is that Moses was sending them on a very specific, very thorough survey of the land. So survey, in fact, like, so thorough, in fact, that if you, if you pull up a map today, what you would notice is the route that they were being called to take to survey the land was 500 miles long. These 12 men spend um, what is, in verse 25, 40 days. And 40 days was an ancient way of saying, um, because they used the moon to track time. Um, it, 40 days was longer than a month and shorter than two months. A, a equivalent, not really, but an equivalent for us is, um, my wife calls me and says, what time are you going to be home? And I'm like, five minutes. Okay, Five minutes doesn't mean literally five minutes. We laugh about it because she's like, okay, so I'll see you in 20? I'm like, yeah, I'll be there in five minutes. Right. And, and so this is kind of the equivalent. It's a Jewish way of saying, it's going to be a little long, but not that long. Because 500 miles is a long long way to cover on foot which is about roughly the time period it would take a little less than two months for them to have walked that path with the hills and the valleys in verse 23 we find out they they go through a valley of Ishkul and it says that they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes and two of them carried them on the pole between them along with some pomegranates and figs and what we see in all of this is that this is a really sweet place to live it's a really nice place to be and the fruit Is large and awesome and it says in verse 26 that they come back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran so they all gather together and everyone's there like anticipating what's about to happen it's like a season finale of this is us for some of you they're all there and they want to know what's gonna happen how does he die right tell us what you saw and so they show up and it says there they reported to them and the whole assembly and they showed them the fruit of the land and people are like oh i mean right um grapes are magnificent pomegranates fixed now here's what you got to realize um the next phrase he says we went into the land which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey all that fruit the land flowing with milk and honey these are a desert people i've been to egypt and egypt is very dusty. All you see is sand. They leave the desert land of Egypt and they walk into the desert wilderness. They have not seen green in a very, very long time. Outside of the Nile flooding and the kind of the fertile lands around the Nile, the idea of fruits and grapes growing like this this world of land of flowing milk and honey sounds like paradise to them they can't envision when you're a desert people lush green land everywhere is incredible right it's it's like traveling to florida in the middle of winter and you forget how green green is you're like wow this is incredible and this is what they're seeing and the land flowing with milk and honey, that's a very picturesque way of saying there's a lot of green grass and there's a lot of farm, a lot of pasture land, farm animals, because that's where milk comes from. They're gonna eat, they're gonna be able to give birth, there's gonna be a ton of milk for us. Honey, because there's so much flowers, there's so much vegetation, bees are everywhere, they're pollinating, and there's so much honey. So it's this really picturesque way of kind of capturing for a desert people. What their destination is going to look like, and you would imagine at this point, everyone's grabbing their bags and saying, "Let's go." But then in verse twenty-eight it says, "But the people who live there are powerful." They're continuing to re- report the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there, and um, which is uh, uh, so the Egyptian in Egyptian history records. Um, There are records of these same people group. And so the average Middle Eastern man uh, around 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago in the past, was a little less than five feet tall, okay? Um, Because of nutrition, one of the things that's happened to humanity as a whole is we've steadily grown taller. But back then, okay, a a really good-sized Middle Eastern man is about five feet. These descendants were genetically, uh, they were, uh, as a people, they were a lot Taller. So you're talking about over six feet tall as a people. So imagine you're a little hair less than five feet and you walk into a party and all there are are six foot two, six foot three people everywhere in the room, right? You feel a little small. Women were around four and a half, four, four, six, four, eight. So imagine picturing. Walking into a room. It's like me being around a bunch of, like an NBA team. I'd be like, they're giants. And this is what they see. This is what they say. They're like, they're even descendants of Anak there. These people, this tribe that have known of large men, powerful warriors. And then they list all the different tribes, the Malachites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites. There are people everywhere, and they're all stronger than us, and there's nothing we can do. And then, verse 30, it says, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And this is so fascinating. This is the conversation playing out in slow motion for us. Twelve men walk into the exact same place, spend 40 days there, and come away with two different experiences, two different interpretations and descriptions of what they've seen. This has always been a fascination of mine. I grew up in a really poor home um, and a really rough family. My mom's an extraordinary woman. Um, She's one of my heroes, and I'm really fortunate that I get to call her mom. But she had a really difficult life, and so did my mom's sister. Really difficult life. And what was fascinating for me growing up as a young boy is I would look at my mom, and then I would look at my mom's sister. They'd experienced the same difficulty, the same struggles, and yet my mom was different than like how she understood, how she reacted, how she responded, what she did with what was done to her. She responds completely different than what my mom's sister does. My mom's sister goes into to a series of destructive habits in her life and um, doesn't raise a single one of her kids. And it's just her, I mean, it's just devastating what the fallout of her choices were. And yet they both experience the same thing. And as a little kid, I was not that cool. I loved TGIF, and it wasn't necessarily because of Steve Urkel. It was because 2020 came on after all those really fun shows. Like, I was a little nerd kid. I thought about nerd things. And one of the things that I thought about a lot was, how do two people walk the same path and end up in two different places? It has always been fascinating to me. And what you see in this story is that same burning question. One is resilient, ready to to raise a sword and to run in to tackle a people. And another one is saying, we need to retreat. We need to run. We can't do this thing. It's impossible. It's because what's happening underneath the surface and what research has been able to demonstrate is that what's playing out in slow motion is that oftentimes we grow up and we have this kind of sense that you have an experience and that experience dovetails with an emotion. You go through something, and you react to that something, and it's instantaneous. It's like A leads to B. But what research has demonstrated, what I watched growing up, and what I think some of us have even seen out in our own lives, is that it's not A leads to B. It's actually A and C. We go through an adversity. We have some emotional consequences. We respond to it. But what's going on in the middle, underneath the surface, is how we explain and how we interpret what we're walking through. It is the mindset in between the A and the C that determines what plays out. It is not your experience that leads to the emotion. It is your explanation of the experience that leads to your emotion. That is profound. That... Elevates us to a place where now all of a sudden, maybe you couldn't have controlled your experience, but now it's not your experience that leads you to respond that way. You are in the driver's seat because you have the power to change how you explain your circumstances. That it's not A to to B, it's A to C with the belief in the in-between. It's the mindset. It's what you think about you ultimately will affect what you do. It's my mom's story and my mom's sister's story and it's Caleb's story and the other ten spies. They both have an explanation for what they've seen and it affects what they do. And that the key to resiliency, the key to rising above, to to going to taking that next step in station of life, of pressing through the storms, deals specifically with how and what We think that explanation piece is the key. There's um, a a famous researcher named Carol Dweck who's done a lot of study in this area of mindset. And while she's kind of put some language to it, we see in this book, in this moment, over three thousand years ago, the power of the consequences of a mindset. One mindset. But 10: the spies who ultimately affect the way other people are thinking cause Israel to walk for 40 years in a desert. They wander for 40 years in the desert. Why? Because what you think about you will affect what you do. Your mindset will eventually affect the way your feet move and how you experience and interpret life. There was a really helpful, interesting study that came across two weeks ago that came out of NYU. They um, took two preschooler groups, and one preschooler group was called, uh, they were brought in and they were like, hey, we want you to be our helpers. And they were led into a room where they were exposed to an experiment that was intentionally designed to fail. So it was a rigged little box when they told, hey, hand me the crayon, bring the box over. When the kids touched it, it dissolved. And all the crayons went scattering all over the floor. And it's not your box of eight. It's that super box that requires the, the dolly. Right? It's just whoom. And what they noticed were the kids who were helpers, the kids who were called helpers in the process, would get frustrated. And they would often quit. And they would feel overwhelmed. Then while this side is being played out, there's a, a mirror room and a group of preschoolers brought in. And this time, they're asked hey can you help me and again the kids walk into the setup and it goes everywhere and what came out of this experiment was really intriguing the kids who were asked to help didn't quit but the kids who were told they were helpers did and the reason why is what Carol Dweck kind of published and what's kind of hit popular literature under the book name Mindset. When you believe you're a helper and you confront a reality where you can't help, you believe this is who you are, this is your identity, this is determined, this is what it is about you, and all of a sudden, as a preschooler, you're in a place where you no longer can do what they've said about you then you will step back. Why? Because something is going on underneath the surface that is incredibly painful. This group, this uh, Carol Dweck would call this the fixed mindset where you believe things are deterministic, my intelligence is set, my skills and abilities are determined, there's nothing I can do, where I have came from is where I came from, I can't overcome that. Th- that mindset, when you confront a reality that bumps up against it, you, you typically flee it. A scarier study that came out of that was that groups of kids who had the fixed mindset when they were encountering challenges for the second time after they failed the first time, those kids tended to cheat. Why? Because they were, they were in a place where they did not believe they could overcome. They were not smart enough, they, they were not good enough at math. You fill in the blank. And what happened? Instead of allowing the lack of that identity to be true about them, they did whatever they needed to do to try to cover it up. And that this idea of helping actually reflects this growth mindset where one is fixated, the fixed mindset is fixated on deterministic causes, right? Where the implications is I flee challenges that could expose me not being a helper when, I, when I'm afraid and threatened by other people's success. There, on this camp, there's this growth mindset which believes that effort is a good thing. That I, I, maybe it's hard, but hard's okay. That it's not me being smart, it's about me being determined. It's the, a different way of thinking, whereas this, the fixed mindset can be fostered in kids and in, in adults. This is not a kid thing, this is a person thing can be fostered by discussing and dialoguing around your byproduct of what you produce, right? Oh, you're so smart. You're you're so athletic. Well, that starts to creep in. It starts to form how you think about you. It's the story you start to say to yourself. But the growth mindset can be fostered by praising the process. Oh, you're so creative. Or you're so, you're so, like, focused. You're so determined. And you praise the characteristics of what they are doing, not this character thing you've defined them to be. And that when you grow up or when you are as an adult or in the process of being told that, and being praised and being celebrated for how you kept pressing even when most people would have given up, what does that do? It starts to foster a new storyline in you. Right, My little girl is learning that she doesn't give up. A couple weeks ago, uh, we were like, what's special about you video. We're in the PT, like our little parent-teacher conference, and the video plays, and kids are like, what's special about me is I like pizza. What's special about me is I like to um, play sports. And then it gets to my little girl, and she's like, what's special about you? And she's like, well, what's special about me is that I don't give up. And everybody's like, oh, and I'm like, yes! Because what I know will happen if we're not careful is that she will start to tell herself a storyline that can shut her down. This past week, we were talking about school and what does she say? She was like, well, um, Daddy, I don't like math. I'm not good at it. And I was like, well, sweetie, why do you say that? Well, it was really hard. Like, I, I didn't understand it. And it took me a really, really long time to do all those boxes up to 120. And and I can see the disappointment on her face, because in her mind that little fixed thought of like, if it's easy, it means I'm good at it. If it's hard, it means I'm not. And I'm like, what? You kept going? You did 120 boxes? Girl, double high five! She's like, what? I was like, you didn't give up. You kept going. Baby, what makes you good at math is that you didn't stop. You didn't stop. You kept moving. You kept going. You kept pushing, even when it was hard. Hard work is good work. Like none of, and we all intuitively know that, right? Nobody goes to the gym and walks in and is like, where's the one pound weights here? I'm trying to beef up. No, we all know. If you want to get stronger, you need resistance. If you want to grow stronger, you got to have weights that are a little bit beyond you. I was like, baby, hard work is good work. And so we're in a corn maze. Which is a whole different story, but what's playing out in this corn maze, or purgatory, however you define it. We have gone around and we've seen the same sign and the same corn husk that she has determined is the star of Bethlehem, I guess, because she's like, there's the star again. It's like, yes, for the seventh time, there's the star again. And we were like walking and I'm like, we're never getting out of this thing. And she looks at Jenny and she's like, I got to (laughs) poop. And I'm like, all right, I guess I'm going to start going like corn kicking and like break through the wall because I don't have a clue where we are and. This is not how this day is going to end for me, and and she's like, I'm like okay. Jenny's like, do, do you want to do you want to like go through the wall over there and like get out of this thing? She's like, I want to finish. <laughs> so we're running around, and I'm like, baby, are you sure? She's like, I'm gonna finish this corn maze. I'm like, okay, girl. And so I'm like sprinting every path and running back, and I'm like, that's not the path. And then running, I'm running, i sprinting this one, I'm like, this was the path, let's go this way. And we make it out that thing about an hour and 15 minutes later, we come running out like we've just climbed Mount Everest, and we break into the parking lot, and there is only one car left, and it's ours. <laughs> and she's like, I gotta poop. <laughs> and in that moment, I was like, I am so proud of you. Because you made your body submit so that you could finish. That's my girl. But I'm fostering that growth mindset. Because I know that she's going to step into a world where she is told, where she's going to be told repeatedly, you can't, you aren't, you will not. She's going to be beat over the head with all kinds of stereotypes about who she is and who she isn't and all this stuff that's not true. And if I'm not careful, it's going to get down deep and it's going to soak into her soul and it's going to start to affect the storyline of her life. And the reason I know it's true is because I've lived that same struggle my entire life too. And I want her to rise above what I've seen. This past week, um, I was able to send this document. This is double page. This is 140 pages. I was able to email this to my faculty supervisor. Because this is all 140 pages. Yes. And in five weeks, I will be Dr. Causey. Yes. And it's really stinking a good feeling, and I cannot believe it. But when I say I cannot believe it, I really mean I cannot believe it. Because while it looks really easy to hold this stack of double-spaced 140 pages in my hand, this was the hardest thing I'd ever done. Because while you may think I'm good with words because I do this every single week, I grew up in one of the poorest school districts in America, and one of the roughest areas, And my entire life, I've always struggled to write. When I was in sixth grade, it was pretty much clear to me I was not a good writer. That I'm not a writer. Yes. It's true. See? Everybody knows it. It's not even a secret. And so I get to 10th grade, and in the the course of my 10th grade year, um, we have to take this exit exam. And part of the exit exam is on writing. You have to write this paragraph. And I failed it. So here I am. I'm in this, you know, I'm now a 12th grader. And it's like three months. I'm the first one in my family. Like no one in my family has ever graduated high school. Okay, And I'm a few months from graduating. The thing that separates me from graduating is the thing that I am most terrified of, writing. It was the most stressful three hours of my life. I still vividly remember sitting in that dark, dusty room, around the chairs with a bunch of other people, and I had to write a paragraph, and I just felt anxiety flowing through me. When I went to college, um, I, I chose biochemistry because you didn't have to write anything in the <laughs> sciences, which I loved. I, I was so terrified of English, I waited to my senior year of college, to take English 102. When I got to English 102, I was forced to go to a writing center. When I got when I got into grad school, my first paper ever wrote was an eight page paragraph. My professor sent me back a sticky note and said, How did you graduate college? This is an eight page paragraph. And how had I not started dating Jenny at that point, who had been an English major who was brilliant woman, um, I probably wouldn't have made it through grad school. And over the last year, I've had to write this thing, and every time I would sit down, what I would hear inside my head is, you're not a writer, you can't do this. I would spend 90 minutes, and after 90 minutes, I would walk away and I would have a page. And I would do the quick math, and I would say in my head, this is never going to happen. And I would go home defeated, frustrated, feeling like a failure because I'm not a writer. And this past year, my wife has graciously helped me And one of the biggest ways she's helped me is she's called out this fixed mindset that I had. I was like, sweetie, you're not a writer yet, but when you send in that document, guess what you are? You're a writer. And when I was wrapping up this thing this past week, I wrote this to my daughter in my preface. I said, Ella, I always dreamed I would earn the title doctor, but the title I'm most proud of is daddy. May God's grace in my story always serve as an inspiration to what he can do through a wholly committed you. Thanks for being my ray of sunshine on the days where I was filled with clouds. And then I wrote this to my mom, who doesn't know, who's probably watching now, um, because this all started, this growth mindset thing, started way back then. Whew, okay. I said, um, Mom, your brave choices and dreams, decade ago, still reverberate in my life today. For a bird with broken... For a bird with broken wings, you taught us to soar. Like this is not, this idea of mindset is not an intellectual or academic study. That what you think about you will affect what you do. That what you think about you will eventually become true. And that is it possible that there are some of us who are living in a place, who are stuck in a space in our marriage, with our kids, in our job, and it is a wall that we have constructed or that we have allowed built around us by people's words, people's statements that we said enough in our own heads that we began to think was true about you. That we allowed those, those rungs, those planks to get passed through into our ears, and they eventually constructed this thing that now we walk by every day. And there are these barriers, there are these walls that we think I'll never get through it. I'll never break through it because that's true about me. That's who I am. That's what's always been said about me. And that if we are going to be a people who foster resiliency in others, if we're going to be a people who foster resiliency in ourselves, then it has to come with us beginning to see and to celebrate the process, not the byproduct, of realizing that the focus and the creativity and the determination and the ingenuity and the hard work, that those things are good things. Those things are valid things. Those are not weaknesses in you. They are the strengths in you. And that some of us would do well to adopt what this Chicago high school started to do with students who when they would get a test back and instead of having the letter F written on it, the teacher would write the words not yet. Because for some of us, we've had the letter F stamped on us in our relationships. We've had the letter F stamped on us in our personal lives, in our choices. Some of us have stamped F on us, ourselves. And that I hope that you would realize that the first step in fostering resiliency is to erase the F and to replace it with a not yet. Because at the beginning of this year, I started with an F in writing. And because of my wife's constant encouragement, it became a not yet that eventually culminated with me standing before an oral defense board and them saying yes. Congratulations, Dr. Causey and that your storyline can be different too. That your F does not have to stay an F, it can become a not yet. And the way I know that, is that while for 40 years they wandered, Joshua and Caleb did not. Everyone else passed away, and yet Joshua and Caleb eventually stepped into the promised land. And why? It's because they had a mindset even better than a growth mindset. They had a mindset that understood the bigger picture at play. It says in verse uh, 6, it says that Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephthah, or whatever, who, um, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the whole Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and He will give it to... Us. That what they demonstrate, I, I would call, and it's not just a growth mindset, it's a Gospel mindset. It's a good news mindset. It's a God is for you mindset. It's a God is in you mindset. It's a belief. This is not hype. The, the reason Moses says go through Hebron is because Hebron was a place of promise. You may have not known the backstory, but. Hebron is the town where Abraham is living. When God says to Abraham, the place that you're standing on Abraham, one day I'm going to give this to your descendants. Oh, I know you don't have any children right now, Abraham, but I'm going to do this through you one day. And so what happens is Abraham and his wife Sarah, they have a child and they're buried in Hebron in the place of promise and that child is buried in the place of promise and then that child's child is buried. And so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the twelve leaders of the tribe. They're all buried in Hebron. And why does Moses tell the people to walk through Hebron? Because he wants to remind them of the promise of what God has said about them that they are not coming to maybe possibly get the land. They are coming with a check to cash and to deposit what God has already promised to them. They are walking by the tombs knowing this is the place that God has promised and he actually in the Hebrew he uses a present possessive praise. This isn't land we possibly has. He's saying, oh, this is our land. Go walk through it. And that this idea, this gospel mindset of realizing that God is for you, that God knows you, He loves you, is a different thing than a guilt mindset or a fixed mind that mindset that just brings condemnation. It's not a mindset that even says not yet. It's a mindset where God has said over us, yes, I love you. Yes, I forgive you. It's a mindset that says over all of us, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, that no longer has to define you. It may describe the back part of your story. It may not be that you get to reset your story. You may not get to change the beginning, but because of Him and the Gospel mindset, you can change your ending. That's better. That's bigger than just getting a redo. That's a whole new start. That's a new you. And that. Caleb and Joshua step into the promise with this Gospel mindset saying, God, you can do this thing even if this thing is bigger than what I think and they think is possible. And that today, as we wrap up and as we close out with a song, would you be willing to maybe look at your own life and to evaluate in our singing, in our response time, the things that maybe you've been saying about you possibly doesn't have to stay true anymore that maybe the guilt, maybe the condemnation, maybe the frustration in your life, in your family's life, that your mom and dad and where they came from, what they did, maybe you're like the, the things that were done to you, those things don't have to define you anymore. You can have a new you. Like what I said to my mom, what, that maybe you're the bird with the broken wing that teaches your children how to soar. Or maybe you're the bird with the broken wing who by God's grace and trusting Him and stepping foot and forward with Him, maybe your broken wing is healed and you start to soar too. But it begins. It begins. Not out there, but up here. Because what you think about you will determine and affect what you do. And what you think about you will ultimately start to come true. Let's pray.